I'm sure that most of us gathered in the room just now are familiar with the story of how John Wesley came to faith. Yeah, we are. Yeah, Instantly, people smiled and nodded. We know that on the night of the 24th of May, 1738, that Wesley attended a meeting on this very spot, or this street, where the preface for uh, Luther's commentary in Romans was read aloud, and where his heart was strangely warmed uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit. We know about Wesley. We know the story. We know the story. We do. Um, Well, perhaps what we're not so familiar with is what actually preceded that event that evening. Um, Earlier that day, what John Wesley had done was attend, he was keen, he attended another church service. Uh, Wesley attended Vespers, just down the road there at St. Paul's. And during that service, his heart was affected. And it was affected by the singing of a spiritual song. Can you guess what song was sung? Psalm 130. The song that we're going to look at this evening. A song that evidently, if you look at Wesley's life, the Holy Spirit can use to move people, can convert lost souls. But a psalm that I think primarily speaks to you and me, Christian friend, and speaks to us at our hour of greatest need. So we're going to look at this psalm. We're going to base ourselves on Psalm 130 tonight. Can I invite you, as we're looking at this, to have it open, to, to turn to Psalm 130. It's on page 518. Psalm 130. Have it there in front of you. And the first thing I want you to see here is the raising of our sin to Almighty God. The raising of our sin, God. Now, if you paid attention to the reading a moment ago, you can't have helped but have noticed the title to the psalm. Isn't that right? Um, it is what's called one of the songs of ascent. So that is the songs in the Psalter from number 120 through 134. Those are the songs of ascent. These are songs that I think most likely were sung just on the eve of the Passover. When all the people of Israel got together and they're going up to Jerusalem for the annual feast, they would sing these songs of ascent. So we get it. We get this, where it was sung. We get the title. Actually, do you know what is, it's more of the, the tone of this psalm that I think we really need to focus on. Do you see how it begins? I mean, look at it, look at it. I mean, could it be any more bleak or dark? What are the first words here? Out of the depths. Everyone in here right now gets that this psalmist is, is, is low. I mean, he's despairing. What I think we need to understand is more than that. Now, we have to understand that metaphorically, he's speaking about the depths of the ocean. He's speaking about the depths of the sea. You you understand, of course, that many people in the ancient world, they thought, they imagined that the final resting place for wicked people was a place called Sheol. And that many people associated Sheol with waters that existed, they thought, under the earth. So do you see the idea here? You've got the wicked people. Where do wicked people end up? They end up in an ocean, a sea of, of chaos. 
A sea of, of waters, an ocean of, 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 of pain. Now, do you see how that kind of colors the psalm? Where's the psalmist? I mean, he is as low as possible. Ebb. I mean, where's he speaking? He's speaking as, as though he is dead. I mean, despairing unto death here. I mean, it's so bleak and so grim. And so what do, right, we're the reader of this psalm. What do we ask? We're thinking, aren't we? Well, what's wrong? I mean, what has caused this? My friends, you know, has somebody close to you passed away? Or, or is there an illness here? Have you lost your job? Or, or what's, have you ever noticed he tells you? Have a look at it. Look at verse 3. We're saying, what's wrong? And what does he link this despair to in verse 3? His, his iniquity. Now, do you see how that suddenly just opens up like a flower? It opens up this psalm. Why is this man just in tears and as low as possible, Ed? Because he is feeling the shame of his sin. The guilt is like all he can see is that he is forsaken his God. He is utterly dismayed that he has wandered from God. And it's that there. That is what has caused this drowning darkness to fall over this man. Do you like this psalm? I love this psalm. And part of the reason I love this psalm is that it makes you and I face a subject we very, very rarely face in the church. A subject that we like to keep kind of hidden and keep secret. We don't like to expose. And what is that? That we in here, in Christ Jesus, even us, even the people of God, that we are wrestling with sin. And friends, even we in Christ, we often despair of sin, do we not? Do we not feel the guilt of what the confession calls the remnants of corruption upon us? The flesh fighting with the spirit, the spirit fighting with the flesh. Uh, my practice on a daily basis in the morning as part of my devotions is to read prayers and to read Puritan prayers. And as I was reading Psalm 130, I took a break from Psalm 130 and I went to this psalm, and I had this prayer, and I want to read just a line or two of this. And I want to ask you, if you're a Christian, can you relate to this prayer? Can you? Here is a Puritan man, a godly man, and what does he pray? Listen, he prays, oh my, crucified, but never wholly mortified sin. My daily shame, oh the tormenting slavery of my sinful heart, destroy it, oh God. Destroy the dark guest within. Can you not pray that prayer? Like, does this Psalm, Psalm 130, does it not feel pretty close to home for some of us? Don't we feel the sin? Don't we see the, the wickedness? It bears on us sometimes, doesn't it? And it causes us to despair. So what do we do? How do we deal with this? Well, hallelujah. That's why the Psalm's here. It's here to show you. So look at verse 1. Have a look at verse 1. What does the psalmist do? What is the first step out of this despair? What does he do? Out of the depths I, I cry to you, God. Do you see it? The first step is what is to confess. We confess our sin. And yet, as I say that to you, what do you know? That we are so reticent 
to do that, even as the people of God, even as Christians sitting in here, how rarely we really bow and confess our sin. Isn't that right? It is, isn't it? We sin, and we are so ashamed of it. We can't believe that we've done it. We can't believe I've said this again, I've done this again, so what do we do? We don't bring it to God, we turn away. And that shame and embarrassment, and we don't pray about it at all, and we just carry on our lives, and we hope that somehow things are going to change, it's going to get better. And it doesn't. And ignoring it doesn't work. And yet what we have here does. Do you see the message? The first stroke to the surface in the sea of despair over our sin is a stroke of confession. We as the people of God should be taking our sin in prayer to our maker. So we see the raising of our sin to God. Second thing we see here is the rehearsing of the gospel of God. So I've I've said to you I love this psalm. I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure many of you love this psalm. Another reason I love this psalm is because of its order. I am a man who loves order. I love order. A bit too much, probably. Uh, And isn't this psalm orderly? If you look at it in front of you, what have you got? You've got, it's just beautiful, beautifully arranged. You've got four equal stanzas or strophes or sections. Do you see them? There's four of them. Each are perfect. They're two verses in length. So you've got perfect order. Perfect order. But as we go into the second section, what I think we're confronted with is something just beautiful. It's something actually in this second section that the reformers for centuries have, have, have basked in the glory of. Just, it's a high point according to the reformers, the Old Testament text. Now you maybe get just a hint of how amazing it is in verse 3 if you look at it. Have a look at verse 3. The psalmist is now kind of marveling at the holiness of God. Do you see how he asks a rhetorical question? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, who could stand? Now you see the idea there? The psalmist is looking, considering the righteousness of the God, the glory of God, and saying, if God, such holy God, were to act immediately in justice, none of us, none of us could stand. So we get him. It's, 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 it's beautiful, it's wonderful, but then we hit the truly amazing thing. Please look at it with me. Look at verse 4. What does he say in verse 4? He says, but with you there is forgiveness. Now I'm standing before you tonight, and I'm saying that that is amazing, and generations of Christians have thought of that as amazing. I ask you, do you see why it's amazing that the psalmist says that? Like, consider for a moment where he is. He is in the pit. He is at the bottom of the sea of despair, and all this man can see is his sin. All he can see is the wickedness of his own heart. And he's utterly despairing. And what is the one thing that this man knows? He knows there's not anything that he can do about it. He can't do anything about it. That's why, did you notice at the end of verse 2, he doesn't pray, Lord, show me how to make amends for this sin. Show me how I can change things. Show me what I... What does he say? He prays, Lord of mercy. 
This man knows the only thing. He can do nothing whatsoever. And yet, in verse 4 and that phrase there, do you see the confidence? What does he say? He says, but there is with you forgiveness. You see the confidence? Like he's looked to God. He's seen the character of God. He's looked into God's word. He's considered the covenant of grace. And he knows if he confesses his sin to this God, he will be pardoned. There is actually forgiveness. He's certain about this. Friend, I ask you, what is this? What is before you in Psalm 130? Is it not grace? Martin Luther said of this line here that he marvels because it is almost Pauline in thought. It's like it's lifted from Romans. Like it's lifted from that here in the depths of the Old Testament, right in the heart of the Old Testament scriptures, we are confronted with the unmerited favor of God. We confess our sins and there is forgiveness. It's grace. Now, we can't get ahead of ourselves, I don't suppose. I mean, this is the Old Testament text. I mean, this guy hasn't got the whole picture, does he? Like this man doesn't know how a just and holy God can justify unjust people. He doesn't have the whole picture. But what is it that I can say to you tonight, Christian friend? You do, as a New Testament Christian, have the whole picture. You know how this just God can justify the unjust. So do you not see the second step out of the sea of despair. You and I have to do what this man does here. You and I have to remind ourselves all the time of grace. To remind ourselves what God has done. What has God done? Isn't it exciting? Think about it. Like in here tonight, you are forgiven. In Christ Jesus, you are free. That sin that you hate and you seal, it's gone. It's gone and been taken. And how, how, oh, the Lord Jesus Christ for you has plunged himself into the ocean. That he's sunk for you into the depths, not to a metaphorical sheol, but actually to a literal death. And at the very bottom, what has he done? He's not faced just your despair. What is it? Actually the blame for all of those iniquities that are really plaguing us and coming to mind just now. The blame for that and the condemnation for it and the punishment for it. He's taken it all and you are forgiven. Surely we see the second step. We must, as the people of God, remind ourselves of the good news each and every day of our lives. And the third thing, we see the resting of our hearts in God. Now, hopefully, uh, you're with me thus far. We've seen this man in the depths. He confesses his sin reminds himself of the covenant grace of God. But it's actually, I don't know, in the third section, I think we see a a new way of life. I think this is a turning point in the psalm. A new way of life in this third section. Do you notice what the man says in verse 5? It's quite, it's it's Psalm 40-ish, isn't it? Because he speaks about waiting. He's reminded himself of pardon. Now there's this kind of sense of, what would you call it? 
longing. I wait. It's longing. It's anticipation. He's looking for this time when he will actually, yes, he knows he's forgiven, but he's looking for this time when he's going to feel it and know it and and experience the whole reality of his salvation and forgiveness. Now, this is what I'm going to say in a moment. Ready? I'm going to say that in this third section, you are given the characteristic of your life just now. What should be the prevailing characteristic of your life as a Christian. So that's a big deal. So if it's as big and as important as that, you'll notice the three things I'm going to show you here. First is the object of the wait. Look at verse 5. What is the psalmist waiting for exactly? Would you read it? Do you see? Like I'm saying to you, he is waiting for the reality of his forgiveness. The day when he will see it and know that he is pardoned truly. And that's right. But it's so much more than that. Isn't it a personal thing? Isn't it a covenantal thing? Isn't that a relationship thing? He's longing for God. He's waiting, desiring God. Second thing. Notice the way that he does it. The manner that he waits. What do you go on to say? I'm waiting for Lord. And my soul waits. And how does he do it? Do you see? In his word, I hope or I wait. And again, you, you, you see it, don't you? This is word-based anticipation. Yes, the psalmist is longing for God. That's his lifestyle. He's longing for God and longing for this part of this salvation when he sees it, when he knows it and experiences it, but he waits through God's precepts and his promises, doesn't he? And then the third one is the most important because we've got to think about the certainty of his weight. If you're part of the congregation here, um, I have spoken to you before about a hell scare that I had a few years ago. And I mentioned it in a sermon in passing. And um, it was fine, you know, and it was okay. But what I told you about before was that I went to the doctors and went through a series of tests. And the the doctor thought, okay, there's something seriously wrong with you. (laughs) Most of you think that. I, I, I (laughs) I accept that. But he was meaning, you know, physically. And uh, he did a, some tests and he said, right, okay, it can be a few things here, but it could be cancer. So here's what we'll do. We'll phone you. We'll do some tests just now and we'll phone you if it's, uh, if it's cancer. We'll phone you in the next 10 days if it's a serious. If not, you're not going to hear from us. But if it's serious, now, think about that. You've probably been in that similar circumstance, I think some of you, before, right? What do you do when you go home? I'll tell you what you do, because I did it. You sit and look at the phone and just wait. And you're just twiddling your thumbs and you're waiting for the light to kind of light up your phone. You're waiting to hear that ring, aren't you? You imagine it at least, can't you? Now, you compare that with the metaphor that the psalmist, the Holy Spirit here, uses for waiting on God. Look at verse 6. Look at it. What is it? It's not wait for the doctor. My soul waits like... No. My soul waits for the Lord more than... Now, get the metaphor here. More than the watchman 
wait for the morning. We all can, you can't picture that scene. Can you? It's guards on a city wall and it's the middle of the night and they're making sure that everything's fine from attack and, and they're tired. Maybe you can relate to that as well. The guards are tired at night and, and they're waiting. Oh, come on. We want the end of our shift. When's the morning coming? Do you see the contract? Think about me waiting for the phone. Will it happen? Will it not? Will the phone ring? Will it not? What about the watchmen? They know for sure. They're not thinking, will the morning come or not? They know for sure in a moment what's going to happen. The sun is going to rise. They know in a moment dawn's going to break. The morning's going to be here. The shift, they know utterly for sure this is happening. And it is, isn't it, that sort of weight that the psalmist has. He, he knows as he writes this psalm, he knows one day the Lord will come. This longing shall be over. One day I will be there. One day I will experience the full reality of, of my salvation and my pardon. One day the Lord will be here. You see? Now I've said to you, this should be the characteristic of our lives as Christians. I wonder if you can recall what we looked at the second last sermon in Malachi. Do you remember what it was? That one day soon, Christ shall return. One day soon, what was Malachi's metaphor? One day the morning will come. One day the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Friend, until that day comes, what must we do? We must wait upon the Lord. You must be looking to the Lord. You must be longing for the Lord. And how do we do it? We do it all through His Word. So we've seen the raising of sin to God, the rehearsing of the good news of God, the resting of our hearts in God, and we're going to close before I melt in the revitalizing of the church of God. So we, where did we start out this morning? Where did we start? Where were we? We were drowning, weren't we? We were at the bottom of an ocean, a despair uh, because of sin. And where are we now, do you think, towards the end of the psalm? Isn't it the case that suddenly what has happened is that the psalmist has just, at this precise moment, burst out onto the surface of the water? Isn't that what's happened? That he confessed his sin, he's reminded himself of grace, he's, he's thought, I will long for God, wait for God, and now he bursts out of the water, out of the despair, and he's gasping, gasping in air, isn't he? Now we still have to deal with this last stanza of the song. And I'm sure you would agree that, that here, in the last stanza, the tone of the whole psalm dramatically changes, because I ask you, if you were to describe Psalm 130, after hearing all of this, how would you describe this psalm? Some of you would say it is a penitential psalm, wouldn't you? One of the seven penitential psalms. You would all say that it is an individual lament, wouldn't you? It's one guy before his God, isn't it? And it's very insular, and it's incredibly personal. But look at how it changes in verse 7 and 8. Suddenly the psalmist looks up, and he addresses a multitude of people. 
And he speaks to this assembly. What does he say? I love actually what one of the uh, reformed commentators says about this. He says that the psalmist speaks of the three friends of God. The three constant companions of God. Do you know what they are? The psalmist speaks of hope. God's constant friend, constant companion. Speaks of steadfast love, covenant faithfulness, and of redemption. Now, I, I will uh, be upfront with you, honest with you. I don't, I'm not all that keen on the way that uh, a lot of commentators and a lot of ministers apply uh, this psalm, and especially this last part of the psalm. Because a lot of ministers will get to seven and eight here, and they will speak about evangelism. And they will speak about witnessing. Do you see why throughout the psalm you've got one man and he experiences the wonders of grace and then you get to the end of the psalm what does he do? He tells everyone about grace. He tells an assembly about grace. And so the minister will, will apply it and speak about witnessing and evangelism. I don't like that so much. Because look at verse 7 at the beginning. Who is he speaking to? He is speaking to Israel. He's speaking to the people of God, the psalmist. So friends, do you see the application for us in here tonight? That in light of Psalm 130, you and I must endeavor to encourage the covenant community of faith. That if you go through Psalm 130... When you experience turmoil and despair over your sin, and by grace, God takes you out of that despair and you mortify the sin and you come out with assurance, you know, of God's goodness and grace. What must you do? What's the fourth step here? What must you do? You must comfort others with the comfort you yourself have received. What's the application? Is it evangelism? Is it witnessing? Maybe what we're supposed to do Encourage our brothers and sisters, our brethren in here with the hope, with the love, the redemption of our God. I'll pull the curtain closed on another Lord's Day this. There most likely are people in the room just now who are at the bottom of the ocean. In this room just now, who are aware of their sin and despairing of their sin but people who still know nothing the sweet taste of grace nothing of the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ if that is you tonight I hope and pray that you see the good news in Psalm 130 that you like John Wesley can have your heart strangely warmed you can be saved eternally. How? Out of the depths, crying to God for mercy. I wonder if you will contemplate that. I wonder if you will do that this evening. Surely you will. And burst to the surface, breathe in the air of everlasting life in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that the psalm shows how corrupt we are, how 
bankrupt we are before you, that we are nothing, that we are stained with sin, that we are incapable of good unto salvation. But we thank you much, much more that the psalm speaks of your unmerited favor, that if we will only confess our sin to you, that you will forgive us and you will pardon us and will adopt us into your very family. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.